Open your Bibles, please, to Job chapter 4. Job chapter 4. I want to share with you one of my favorite passages about salvation, but I want to take a few minutes getting there. I want to give you the cold, cruel facts about your existence and the impossibility of you ever being in the presence of God who is in heaven and we're on earth and you're a sinner and he's infinitely holy. I just want to remind you that it's an impossible case and you are not going there. Job chapter 4, we read beginning at verse 18. Behold, speaking of God, he put no trust in his servants and his angels he charged with folly. How much less in them that dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, which are crushed before the moth. They are destroyed from morning to evening. They perish forever without any regarding it. Doth not their excellency which is in them go away? They die, even without wisdom. That's angels compared to men. And so it says about angels, to build the case from the greater to the lesser, if it's true of angels, then it's certainly true of us. And so what does it say about angels? He put no trust in his servants. Those are his angels. And his angels he charged with folly. Now if they were charged with folly for simply having pride, what are we going to be charged with for having pride and everything else that the Bible describes about us? Look at chapter 15 of Job. God has a problem with us. That's why we can't get to heaven. Because God has a problem with us. Job 15, verse 14. What is man that he should be clean? And he which is born of a woman that he should be righteous? Behold, he putteth no trust in his saints. Yea, the heavens are not clean in his sight. Again, the angels were judged as sinners and thrown out of heaven. The angels greater in power and glory than you will ever be. From this earthly terrestrial viewpoint, he charged them and threw them out of heaven. How, how, what's he going to do with you? Oh, and the Bible just keeps going on and telling us about the angels. He's reserved in chains unto destruction of the great day, that the, that the lake of fire is a place prepared for the devil and his angels, his servants, angelic beings, for their pride thrown out of heaven. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18, it tells us that if we eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we'll die. And the death that is described there is the death of a hundred billion souls. It's hard for us to even comprehend such a small sin of eating the fruit off a forbidden tree and a hundred billion souls dying a tripart death. Three different deaths. They died physically, they died spiritually, and they died the second death, which is to die eternally. Look at Genesis chapter 3 with me about that event and how the Lord comforted them. And I speak as a fool. He didn't comfort them. He told them about additional curses that would be on them. There was a warning given to the devil that we take as comfort because we understand it. But the promise of a male seed that would destroy the devil was a warning to the devil in Genesis 3.15. Genesis chapter 3, verse 22. 
And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us, to know good and evil. He's mocking them. They didn't learn anything except that they were naked by eating the fruit off the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man. And he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword, which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. No access to the tree of life, mocked and excluded from the garden of Eden. He mocked them and he locked them out. Because of God's beautiful, beautiful holiness, you'll never get to see him without holiness and you don't have any. Without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 14. I read to you this morning already from Psalm 5 that the foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Be honest and admit to the Lord and to yourself that you are foolish and you are a worker of iniquity. It is impossible for him to ever receive you. He is of purer eyes than to behold evil approvingly in Habakkuk chapter 1 and verse 13. To keep you close at hand, look at Exodus chapter 34. Exodus chapter 34, the Bible is filled with descriptions and warnings like this about the impossible situation of you ever pleasing God and being accepted by him and spending eternity with him in heaven. Exodus 34 and verse 7. I want the middle of the verse where it says, And that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children under the third and to the fourth generation. If you don't think you're much of a sinner, then your parents were. If you don't think your parents were, then their parents were. He's got you covered. You're a sinner, and there is no means to, for him to clear the guilty. This is what it says. This is the Bible truth of the God we deal with. There is no chance in hell for the devil to escape hell. He's going there. God cannot by any means clear the guilty, and we're guilty. He can't clear us. The Bible says the soul that sinneth, it shall die. The Bible says he cannot acquit the wicked. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. Look at Exodus chapter 3. And let's remind ourselves of the God that we worship. And the God that created us. And the God that will judge us. Exodus chapter 3. Moses is on the backside of the desert keeping sheep for his father-in-law. And it says in verse 2, The angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. Verse 2 of Exodus chapter 3, And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses! And he said, Here am I. 
And he said, Draw not nigh hither. Put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. That's the God we deal with. That's the God we worship. That's the God of the Bible. That's the God that's the creator of the heavens and the earth. How do you think you're ever going to stand in his presence? Moses had to take his shoes off even to be near a burning bush where it was the angel of the Lord in the burning bush. Did you read Exodus chapter 19 last night? And that they could not approach, approach Mount Sinai where God was going to come down and reveal his truth to Moses and the people of Israel. And if anybody passed through the barrier, passed through the, the ropes like a teller line in a bank, and passed through the velvet rope to approach the Mount Sinai, they were to be thrust through with darts. It didn't matter if it was your little pet. Right. It was to be killed. If anybody came through, did God send Moses back down to make sure that no one came through? That's how serious it is dealing with this God. And I love this God just the way he is. And if he sends my soul to hell, his righteous law approves it well. Because he's righteous and holy and I am not. I don't deserve to be in his presence. And I'll gladly and freely admit it. He's a glorious, infinitely perfect and beautiful in holiness God. And I'm the opposite of all those things. Everything he is that is good, I'm bad and worse. God has a problem with us. He wouldn't let them get near Mount Sinai. When he inspected our race and examined you, he found only filthiness. Psalm 14 tells us, do you know these verses? The older ones in the church should know these. You young people that are coming up, I want you to learn them and know about the God we worship. Psalm 14, the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. They are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. You're filthy in the sight of God. And he can't stand filth. There is no filth in heaven, just like there's no folly in heaven. Annihilation would be easy, but God doesn't annihilate. God sends angels and men to eternal torment in the lake of fire. Those who practice false Christianity will be tormented forever and ever. Look at Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14 describes those that worship the beast and his image and receive his mark. They are the followers of the Roman Catholic Church. The Babylon of the New Testament. Revelation chapter 14 verse 9, And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast in his image, and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest day nor night, who worship the beast and his image, and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. Roman Catholics. 
That is God's description of them. Those that follow the beast. Look at the graphic language that is used. I am no more graphic than the word of God and less so. It's terrible. How do you think you're going to get in the presence of this God? At least these people were Christians according to the almanac. Because when you look in the almanac and it says there's 2.2 billion Christians on earth, the Roman Catholics make up half of that number of 1.1 billion. The punishment is so severe that the Lord Jesus Christ compared it to a man being there that begged for Abraham to send Lazarus with his finger dipped in water to quench his parched tongue. That's how serious Jesus preached about hell. God is so great, he warned even his friends that God's enmity was terrible. And my friends, fear not them which kill the body. And after that, have no more that they can do. And men have devised some pretty creative ways to kill the body. They can cause you an enormous amount of pain before you get to die. Fear not them which kill the body. And after that, have no more that they can do. But I will forewarn you whom ye shall fear. Fear him which after he hath killed, hath power to cast both body and soul into hell. This is the truth of God's word. It is impossible for you to ever get to heaven or for you to ever stand in the presence of this being because God has a problem with you and your problem is sin and he can't tolerate it, won't tolerate it, and has to punish it eternally. Now you have a problem with God. Let me show that to you. Let's go back to Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33. Moses was the closest man in the Old Testament up to David with the Lord, with God. Moses knew Jehovah better. Moses knew God, Jehovah, face to face as a friend talks to a friend. Does the Bible tell us that about Moses? It does. Exodus 33 and verse 20. No, I won't want verse 20 yet. I want verse 18. And he said, that is Moses said, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. God, you're my friend. Show me thy glory. And he said... I will make all my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee, and will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And he said, Thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. So while the Bible can use the expression God and Moses knew each other face to face like friends, that was just a metaphorical description that God had revealed himself to Moses just a little bit. Because for God to reveal himself to Moses in quantity and in quality, it would annihilate Moses. No man shall see me and live. Moses knew God face to face, but when he saw his power on Mount Sinai, and though it is not told us in Exodus 19, it's told us in Hebrews chapter 12, Moses exceedingly feared and quaked. Moses shook in his boots at the presence of God on Mount Sinai when God, when Moses had seen God, been with God, and saw God's works over and over and over. There's a problem. 
This is our problem with God. We can't handle it. We're terrified by his presence. Isaiah 6, are you familiar with it? In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw also the Lord high and lifted up and his train filled the temple. And what did Isaiah, the prophet of God, say? The prophet that, that put out some of the most beautiful chapters in the Bible, in the book of Isaiah. Woe is me, for I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Anyone in here want to say they have clean lips compared to Isaiah? Anyone in here want to say they dwell in the midst of a people of clean lips? We all have unclean lips and we dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And woe is us! Because I've seen the Lord. And what attribute was praised? His love? Never in situations like this. What attribute of God was praised? Holy, holy, holy. Lord God Almighty, because of his holiness. What is holiness? An absolute hatred and despising of sin. We have a problem with God. Look at Job 40. Job 40. Now Job had some wise friends, and they knew the God that I'm telling you about. But those first three friends worked him over for 30 chapters and did no good. Then Elihu worked him over and did no good. But let's come to chapter 40. Now the Lord's just spoken. This God that I'm telling you about has spoken for two chapters. Chapters 38 and 39. Here's what Job said then. Job hadn't repented with the, with the work of Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, and Elihu. But now he's heard from God. Verse 1, Moreover the Lord answered Job and said, Shall he that contendeth with the Almighty instruct him? This is the way God speaks to the most righteous man on earth. Job, a perfect man. He bragged to the devil about this man. This man's better than you and me. Job was a great man. Shall he that contendeth with the Almighty instruct him? He that reproveth God, let him answer it. Come on, big boy. Justify yourself. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer thee? I will lay mine hand upon my mouth. Once have I spoken, but I will not answer. Yea, twice, but I will proceed no further. Then answered the Lord unto Job out of the big ball of cotton candy that came down from the sky. Then answered the Lord unto Job out of the whirlwind out of a tornado, out of a hurricane. But we're not going to keep reading. I want you to notice the effect that it had on Job. Job knew he was a four-letter word that starts with V. I am vile in thy sight. Chapter 42. God gave him two more chapters. Not quite enough for the Lord. He already repented, but the Lord wants to give him a little bit more about himself. And I want to give you a little bit more about him. Job 42. Now Job answers again. Job answered the Lord and said, I know that thou canst do everything, and that no thought can be withholden from thee. Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have, therefore have I uttered that I understood not, things too wonderful for me, which I knew not. Here 
I beseech thee, and I will speak. I will demand of thee, and declare thou unto me. I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. Wherefore I abhor myself, and repent in dust and ashes. So I abhor myself in the presence of God, speaking to Job out of a whirlwind for four chapters, the righteous man, the righteous man who said, I want to meet him. I want to sit down with God and explain how good I am so that he'll relieve me of these burdens. That man said, I abhor myself and I repent in dust and ashes. We have a problem with God because we're not good enough to be in his presence. When Jesus told Peter, James, and John to throw their nets on the other side, and Peter took in a great draft of fishes, and Jesus was there. Peter fell at his feet and said, Depart from me, O Lord, for I am a wicked man. If you were to see God, the only thing that you can say is, Whoa! Right. The only thing you can say is, I am vile. The only thing you can say is, I abhor myself. The only thing you can say is, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. John fell at Jesus' feet. John knew Jesus better than any, having sat so close to him during his ministry. And when he saw Jesus glorified in Revelation chapter 1, though he was one of his best friends, he fell at his feet as dead. Look at Isaiah 64. Isaiah 64. And you want to tell me that you're better than Job? You want to tell me you're better than Moses? You want to tell me you're better than Isaiah? You want to tell me about your righteousnesses? I have the word of God about them. Isaiah 64 and verse 6. But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. Do you need me to help you understand what a filthy rag is? Or do you already know when a woman's on the rag? That's your righteousnesses. Right. A better text, one that I like a great deal, is Isaiah 66. We have a problem with God. So when we try to do righteousness, God looks at them like filthy rags. Isaiah 66 and verse 3. This is men that sin in the sight of God when they're offering him his required sacrifices. Are you with me? These, this is what God thinks of men when they're offering his ordained sacrifices. He that killeth an ox is as if he slew a man. You're like a murderer when you stand before me, though you have just slain an ox for my altar. He that sacrificeth a lamb, that was God's required sacrifice, as if he cut off a dog's neck, as if he offered swine's blood. He that offereth an oblation is as if he offered swine's blood. He that burneth incense, as if he blessed an idol. Yea, they have chosen their own ways, and their soul delighteth in their abominations. I will choose their delusions and their judgments that come upon them. This is how God looks at you when you're doing your best religiously, but you have sin in your life. When you're doing what he said to do 
in ritual and ceremony. It is so true. We have a problem with God. If thou shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? It's the only text in my outline fully typed out. Psalm 130 and verse 3, David. Lord, if thou shouldest mark iniquities, who should stand? Because we have an iniquity problem. We've got lots of iniquities. We've got lots of sins and transgressions. Brethren, God is no respecter of persons. So while you've got a way, you've got a way deceiving people about yourself, you can never deceive him because he is not a respecter of persons. Therefore, the Bible says, pass the time of your sojourning here in this world in fear. First Peter 1.17 God has a problem with us. We have a problem with God. The two of us will never meet. We need a two-way reconciliation. Look at Genesis 3. Back to Genesis 3. We need someone to reconcile us. You know, there was someone in the Garden of Eden that helped separate them, that separated God and man. Why wasn't there someone in Eden to get them back together? Genesis chapter 3, beginning at verse 7. The eyes of them both were opened, Adam and Eve, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. So you're trying to cover your guilt before this God? And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves. That's what you'll do. Do you know what you'll do? Do you know what the book of Revelation tells me you'll do? You'll call for the mountains to fall on you to save you from the wrath of God and his face. Heaven and earth will flee from the face of him that sits on his throne of judgment. Don't forget those words. His throne of judgment. His throne of wrath. They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? You know that effeminate song that some have heard on a particular CD about God calling for his friend Adam? Forget it. That man doesn't know the true God of the Bible. Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree? Whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat. Then they got into a blame game. There was no reconciliation found. There was just judgment, 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 mocking them and kicking them out of the garden and putting up a cherubim to make sure they couldn't get to the tree of life. Look at Job chapter 9. Job 9. The Bible is a book of progressive revelation. We start in the beginning with sin, and we progress through sin. We progress through the life of Israel and their ridiculous whoring after other gods. We see the best of men are sinners. We see Noah drunk after he got off the ark. We see David committing all kinds of sins and transgressions and heinous ones. It's sin. It's not until we get to the end of this book that we have the full revelation of the New Testament. But right now we need a reconciler, an advocate, like a brother told us about a few minutes ago. Job chapter 9 and verse 32. 
for he is not a man. Our God is not a man. You may have been able to convince others that you deserve more fair treatment. He is not a man. He is not a man as I am that I should answer him. And we should come together in judgment. Neither is there any daysman betwixt us that might lay his hand upon us both. Let him take his rod away from me and let not his fear terrify me. Then would I speak and not fear him. But it is not so with me. And that's Job. There wasn't any recourse for Job. There wasn't any advocate for Job. There wasn't any daysman to put a hand on each, God and Job, to reconcile them. There was no arbiter. There's a gulf between heaven and hell that allows no movement in either way, Jesus Christ taught us. We need a priest to intercede, but the best priests, the only priests, the Levitical priests of the Old Testament failed because they died. They couldn't even save themselves. And so Hebrews chapter 7 kind of mocks them in comparison to another priest. The Old Testament sacrifices, if you read Hebrews 10 last night, could never put away sin. If you read carefully, Hebrews 10 said two things about the Old Testament sacrifices. They could never put away sin so that God was satisfied. They could never put away sin to make clear your conscience. So you went around defiled and guilty all the time. And God always had those sins against you because that animal blood never took it away except for ceremonial cleanliness that he wouldn't drop fire straight from heaven and kill you this instant. That's all that it did so that you could keep functioning for another day. Not in your conscience, not legally in heaven did those animal sacrifices put away sin. When God is angry, there is no ransom. Look at Job 36. These are the words of Elihu to Job. Job 36, verse 17. Elihu speaking to Job. Job, but thou hast fulfilled the judgment of the wicked. Judgment and justice take hold on thee. Job, because there is wrath, beware lest he take thee away with his stroke then a great ransom cannot deliver thee. Will he esteem thy riches? No, not gold, nor all the forces of strength, is what the Bible says. What is, what is, how can we summarize those words? Job, you don't stand a chance. You can't buy your way out. You can't force your way out. You're trapped under his wrath, and you're talking like a wicked man, He's going to cut you off with a stroke. If an infinite God needs infinite payment for sin, how will a finite man or woman like you ever pay it? John learned with a temporary view of heaven that there was no man in heaven, no man on earth, no man under the earth that could walk up to God and take the book of the everlasting covenant out of his hands. The day of atonement allowed the high priest alone to offer for himself and others entrance into the presence of God one time per year, high priest only. Only one man, only one time a year, and he would have to do it again next year because the sins weren't really forgiven. There wasn't really atonement, only ceremonial atonement made. 
between that God and his chosen people, let alone the rest of the world. What will you say when you stand before God and he calls you friend? Oh, you forgot? Don't tell me we have a Thomas or two here. Matthew 22. Many are called, but few are chosen. The apostles went out and preached the gospel. And good and bad were drawn into his kingdom. And the Lord's going to examine each one of them and come up to them in heaven and say, Friend, why don't you have a wedding garment on? And the friend will be speechless. Then the Lord will speak and say, Take him out of here and cast him out and let him experience weeping and gnashing of teeth in utter and outer darkness. For many are called, but few are chosen. Okay, we have three problems. God has a problem with us. We have a problem with God. And there's no reconciler. Honestly. What, what else can you tell me about your existence? I just told you more about your existence than you're going to learn in any course in school unless it's a very careful Christian school. Why do you exist? What are you here for? What's your purpose in the universe? Where'd you come from? What role did you have in it? Where are you going? What matters? There is a God that despises sinners. He is holy. When he wanted to give a picture to his chosen people of his holiness, he had them build a little compartment, a little room on the end of the tabernacle that was called the Holy of Holies or the holiest of all. God has abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence in what he's designed. God designed your creation and he designed I didn't say he did it for you. I said he designed your condemnation and he designed the captain of your salvation. And he has abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. Now may I share a passage of scripture with you? Hebrews chapter 10. You read it last night and I wonder if you just ran over it. I put it in the Friday update. I gave you every conceivable hint that I could. Hebrews chapter 10. God designed your creation, he designed your condemnation, and he designed your captain. And he has abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. Where are those verses found? Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 9. It's in the middle of that wonderful description in Ephesians chapter 1 of what he's done for our salvation. Do you understand that the Apostle Paul, being as logical as he was, under inspiration, would present his doctrinal case and then draw the application from it in his writing. Romans, the first 11 chapters, ends with, Amen. For of him and to him and through him are all things, Amen. 11 chapters of doctrine are over. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, I beseech you, therefore, 
Because of 11 chapters of what I've just explained, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. Ephesians chapter 3, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Right in the middle of the book. Boom. Doctrine's over. Then we have verse 1 of chapter 4, where the application is made how we should respond. Where is that in Hebrews? It's right here. It's right here at verse 19. Hebrews 10, 19 begins the application of the book of Hebrews. Having therefore, where's, what's the therefore, therefore? Because of what's been said in the previous nine and a half chapters. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, and having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Amen and amen. This, these four verses are precious to me, and I want them to be precious to you very fast. It's the transitional point in this book. I declare to you that boldness is the trait you should have worshiping the God I just told you about. Right. Boldness. Because that's what it says. Having therefore, brethren, boldness. We have boldness because he had just said in 1017, thank you, David. You used Hebrews 1017. Their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. But he is not unrighteous to forget our labor of love. Did you say that? That he remembers our good things? You didn't quote the verse, but he remembers our good things and forgets all our bad things. Having therefore, because he, that's Hebrews 6.10. He is not unrighteous to forget our labor of love, but it's 10.17, it's chapter 8 as well, that says their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. He forgets our sins and iniquities. He remembers every good thing we've done and sanctifies it all by the blood of Jesus, as we'll get to in a second. But notice the trait that we're supposed to have, according to verse 19, having therefore, brethren, boldness is the trait we should have worshiping God to enter into the holiest, the holiest, the holy of holies, pictured in the Old Testament, the holiest, the presence of God, the holiest, heaven itself, the holiest, what Isaiah saw when he saw God high and lifted up and the, and the seraphim announcing his tri-holiness. The holiest. We can go right in there boldly. Having therefore, brethren, because of nine and a half chapters, my beloved brethren, we should have boldness to enter into the holiest and here's the way that made it open, the blood of Jesus. And we're about to celebrate that blood of Jesus. And we're about to remember the shedding of that blood of Jesus. But it's that blood of Jesus, the blood of his only begotten son, that opened that way for us. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way. God's throne is no longer one of anger or terror, but it is called the throne of grace in chapter 4 of this book. Hebrews 4, 16. Let us therefore come... Oh, we have a word again. A B word. 
Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain help and find mercy. Yes, Lord. Yes. That's because it's at the end of your Bibles. Do you know how much is left? When I, look at it. There's nothing left. It's all of this stuff to get us here. And so it was all of my stuff to get you here. It was because I wanted you to think about the God we deal with. He's got a problem with us. I want to think about you. You have a problem with him. And I want to tell you there is no one to mediate except one. And he's told here at the very end, we have to just keep reading and reading and reading. Thank you, Lord, for this side of the cross. Thank you, Lord, for this ordinance that we get to have, not an ordinance with some lamb that when we sacrifice it because we have sin in our lives, he considers it swine's blood or cutting off a dog's neck. Oh, I love these verses. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way. I did not coordinate this sermon at all with John 14, 6. I tell you in the name of the Lord. It blew my mind. I've been playing with this wonderful passage of Scripture in my head, but look at what it says, by a new and living way. Did not Jesus say, I am the way? How is he the way? It tells us right here, his flesh. His flesh hung on the cross of Calvary, and he cried out, it is finished! As the life left his flesh and a spirit left his body. Amen. Verse 20, by a new and living way. It's a new way because it didn't exist and it wasn't known before. It was opened by Jesus 2,000 years ago. It's called a living way because it's not based on dead rituals, but due to an immortal high priest at the right hand of God. Oh, what a way it is. Amen. He's there for us as our advocate. But it wasn't known before. You know, Jesus came 4,000 years after creation. For 4,000 years, they only saw, and only a few men, saw a few things obscurely. But now we have a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us. All the consecrations of the law of Moses, oh, the washings and the dippings and the sprinklings and the ceremonial steps that they had to go through to consecrate something for the presence of God, to consecrate something for the worship of God, to consecrate something for the use of God. You know, oil on the, on the top of their ears and oil on their head and just stuff everywhere. What do we do? We've been anointed by the Holy Ghost. Right. Who is the Holy Ghost? The presence of God on earth with us in us, around us. It's incredibly superior. He hath consecrated for us. It is fully consecrated. Jesus has made everything we do acceptable to God that's done in obedience. That was read to us. 1 Peter chapter 2. Made acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He hath consecrated for us through the veil. You know, that was a picture that we were separated from God. Through the veil, the veil's no longer there. When Jesus cried, it is finished, the veil was rent from top to bottom. I did a lot of extra reading again on how thick the veil was. It was four inches thick. On how high it was, it was 40 cubits, which is 60 feet. You say, how do you know? Well, there were men back there that wrote all about it. Josephus wrote all about it, and the Jewish rabbis have all kinds of documents about it. 
It was 60 feet tall, and it was 30 feet wide because it was 20 cubits. It was four uh, inches thick, and it took 300 priests to manipulate it in place. That's how heavy a... Can you imagine a tapestry that is four inches thick and 60 feet long and 40 feet wide? 30 feet wide? Through the veil. That is to say, his flesh... Now the words, that is to say, his flesh, are not referring to the, through the veil, but a new and living way which he hath consecrated. And that was his flesh. His flesh opened up the way to God and gave us a new and living way into his presence. What, do we, what should we do? And having a an high priest over the house of God. We now have our own high priest, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ who is the son of the living God. Right. Not only is the way open, but we have an advocate we have a mediator. We have a lawyer to help us with God. Incredible. And that's what that 21st verse means. And having a high priest over the house of God. The whole family of God. This is the general assembly of God. The whole family of God has an advocate in heaven pleading for us. And not pleading in the sense of might, could you, would you, consider it, Lord. But just reminding God of what he's done for us and that he died for each one of us. It's glorious. Amen. The house of God is the whole household of faith, as the Bible calls it, the family of God, or the general assembly, three different terms for the larger house of God, rather than this local house of God here in Greenville. Now, when you look at verse 22, are you ready to run near to God? Let us draw near. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. You can have full assurance by faith in what I just told you. Amen. And we can draw near. I, let us draw near. Let's draw near. Let's do it. Right. Let's get as close to God as we can. Let's love him, adore him, praise him, invite him, beg him. Know that we can go right to him. Speak to him. Praise him. Pray, him, pray to him, knowing that he hears us. He hears us better and more than he heard David because we have the son of David interceding for us. It's let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. You can go right up to him on his throne to love him. You can go right up to him right now. You say, well, I can't see him. Why do you want to see him? If you can see a God, then he ain't much of a God. Right. This God you can't see because he's infinitely invisible. He fills and inhabits eternity. He fills this room. Why do you want to see him? Well, I can't see him. I want to feel him. Why do you want to feel him? Listen, if your five senses can detect something, it's something we don't want. Because that means it can be smelled. That means it stinks. That means it can be heard. That means it makes a noise. We don't want any of those things. We want this right here, the written revelation of God about his son, Jesus Christ. And we can draw near to him in full assurance of faith. You say, I just don't have assurance. Then what about, what here don't you believe? What, what right here don't you believe? Why are you so smart that you know more than these verses? Well, I just don't feel it. Well, that's probably because you're cutting off a dog's neck or offering swine's blood. Because you have sin in your life instead of confessing your sins and loving this God and Savior because he'll shed abroad his love in your hearts and give you full assurance of faith. 
Why don't you get full assurance from the fact of verse 17 that their sins and iniquities will I remember no more? You say, well, I remember everybody's sins and iniquities against me. That's your fault. Why would you compare God to you? I mean, at least pick me. I'll do better than you. Why would you even think anything like that? Believe it. Believe it. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. Remember when you read last night, the first part of this chapter said that it never purified their consciences. There was always a consciousness of sin. Always a consciousness of sin. As soon as we hear about the Lord Jesus Christ and read a passage like this and know what he did for us, and we read about the sprinkling of blood. The sprinkling of blood is using Old Testament metaphorical language to describe what Jesus did in heaven for us. Right. In fact, it says in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 2, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen. Because it's using that Old Testament symbology to picture what Jesus did in heaven. He sprinkled his blood for us. And it's by the blood of Jesus back there in verse 19 that we can go boldly into the presence of God. So our consciences are now good. Amen. I don't have any sin. God's forgotten all my sins. Right. And if God can forget all of my sins, it won't be so hard with any of you. He's forgotten all of mine. Amen. I believe that because it tells me so. Right. I have full assurance of faith. You say, do you really feel it? I don't look to my feelings. If I look to, you don't want to look to my feelings. I look to, in my faith to God's word. He said it, that settles it. In between, I believe it because it's the full assurance of faith. So it's my faith that lays hold of the promises of God and gives me confidence let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. My heart, where my conscience lies in this particular verse, is free from the burden and guilt of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation of them which are in Christ Jesus. I embrace it by faith. My heart is satisfied. I don't have any guilt before God. So what do I do when I have a good conscience toward God? I get baptized. That's what I do, right? Isn't that what 1 Peter 3.21 tells us? That baptism is the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ because it pictures Jesus Christ's burial and death and Jesus Christ's resurrection from the dead. And so we identify with Jesus Christ by baptism in water. And so it says, and our bodies washed with pure water. There ain't no sprinkling in that because all they do is put a little bit on your forehead. It's our bodies washed with pure water. It's immersion. And they had all their washings. We have our washings on the other side of everything being forgiven. They did all their stuff in hopes to be forgiven and they weren't forgiven and they still had guilty consciences and God wasn't satisfied, but God is satisfied. Isaiah 53 said, He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. Amen. Amen. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, I am the way, the truth, and the life, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, 
and having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So Job, Jude, excuse me, not Job, Jude. Jude would close out his little epistle this way. Now unto him, and I'm telling you, Jude is one of the most ferocious little epistles in the Bible. Jude starts right off with reprobates who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. It's got harsh language. It's the one that told us about Enoch had prophesied that Jesus Christ would come. His second coming, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, knew about the second coming. I used it with you on Wednesday evening. And it's there in verse 14 that he's coming with ten thousands of his saints. Those are his angels. They're going to execute judgment upon all. And it goes on and on describing what the judgment of God's going to be like. But then it gets to the last two verses. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Amen. Do you know how happy you're going to be in that day? when we're presented by Jesus Christ? Because it says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 10 that when Jesus Christ comes back, we are going to glorify him and we are going to admire him because he will be our Savior and we will know it. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to the only wise God our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and ever. Amen. Amen. Amen.